Soulmates. We have plenty to talk about today. Unfortunately, another heavy day. It's Wednesday, heavy, Fox heavy. Soul's Black Report. We're following the latest in the deadly confrontation between two women in Florida, and we'll talk about the uh, high school shooting at that graduation in Virginia. I'm Courtney Hicks. And I'm Nicole Cordelide Corte, plus the national state of emergency being declared for the LGBTQ community. They're the stories that impact our people. We're bringing you our news, our views, and our voice. Again, the top conversation for today, gunfire erupted at a high school graduation ceremony in Richmond, Virginia, leaving two dead and several injured. A 19-year-old suspect is in custody and expected to face charges. Victims include an 18-year-old graduate and his 36-year-old father. A 9-year-old girl was hit by a car during the incident. She's been released from the hospital since then. The Richmond uh, School Board has canceled upcoming graduation ceremonies and closed schools today and is urging the community to unite against violence. Authorities have arrested a woman in central Florida in connection with the death of Ajiki A.J. Owens, a black mother who was fatally shot after knocking on a neighbor's door. The Marion County Sheriff's Office has announced the arrest of a 58-year-old Susan Louise Lorenz, a white woman, on charges of manslaughter with a firearm, culpable negligence, battery, and two counts of assault. Owen's family and attorneys demanded the arrest and charging of the shooter, who they accused of verbally attacking Owen's children with racial slurs. Investigators determined that the shooter's actions did not meet the justifiable criteria under Florida law. Yeah, I've been listening into the conversation, especially uh, the ones held with by the legal experts, and they're saying that you know the stand your ground thing does not apply when you are you know within the confines and and pretty much safe behind, you know, closed doors in your home, which is why um, this um, uh, arrest has happened. And they were going on to say more than likely she will be, uh, you know, convicted because it just does not hold up. Um, you know, a lot of criticism as to why authorities down there, you know, it took a minute to go ahead and charge her. The legal experts were saying, hey, you know, you want this to be done properly. Uh, and so it can play out in the courts uh, properly. And so they'd rather have a delay in charges than for authorities to sort of kind of jump the gun and not really look at all the facts involved. But they're predicting um, that as a result of the facts at hand, that uh, more than likely she will be convicted because the, the stand your ground um, um, defense won't hold up in this case. And there's definitely room and reason for cautious optimism. Mm -hmm. I sort of breathe a slight, sly, a slight, slight sigh of relief mm -hmm. when I heard that it looks like uh, stand your ground is not going to be a shield mm -hmm. uh, towards any sort of accountability. But I was a little disappointed because the charges to me, you know, don't don't rise to the, the, the charge of murder. Um, charges of manslaughter with a firearm, culpable ne negligence, battery, and two counts of assault. But I'm not hearing murder. She shot a mother through the front door while her kids were around, right? I mean, you know, uh, I don't see how that meets the manslaughter, uh, uh, you know, requirements. Mm -hmm. But then again, I'm not a legal expert. But, yeah. but I agree with you, but maybe these charges are what prosecutors are convinced will stick. You know, I hear you on that, and I agree with you on that. Murder should be somewhere in there. It's, yeah, I mean, the quite intentional. That, the fact that a murder However, charge like this can't stick in Florida yeah. in, a, in a case like this, or at you, least they you, don't, they don't well, think it, it You might. just said it. You just Ooh, said it. It's, it's another, look, folks are trying to make America Florida. Mm, mm. This, is, this is part of what that means.
All right, President Biden is providing $115 million to rebuild Jackson, Mississippi's water infrastructure. The city faced a water system collapse due to neglect and flooding, leaving residents without clean drinking water for days. Emergency and technical support have been provided by the federal government. A court ruling allows the appointment of an external manager to address the city's water issues. President Biden aims to ensure clean water access for all Americans and commands, uh, really commends rather, Representative Benny Thompson for his role. I mean, we have reported on this Jackson water crisis again and again and again. It's good to see that the administration is acting right now mm -hmm. to, to give the people of Jackson what they need. Um, and according to Mitch Landrieu, uh, who is the senior advisor to the president and coordinator for all infrastructure investments, that initial $115 million award will be immediately available. It will immediately uh, hit the ground in Jackson. That's really important because you might remember one of the sticking points was whether or not this money from the federal government would, would flow to the governor and allow the governor to parse it out. Well, the fact that it's going to flow directly to, to Jackson, not only is that money a big win for the people of Jackson, mm -hmm. uh, but the way that money's being doled out directly to folks on the ground, that's also a big win. And, and let's big ups and let's keep that energy coming. You've got places like Flint and Houston who you know, are heavily uh, black populated uh, cities who have also had uh, deep, deep, heavy issues uh, with their water and long withstanding, if you will, issues uh, after effects. So, you know, some of that money uh, being allotted to aftercare. You have people in Flint who are still suffering from those conditions, from ingesting and using that water on a day-to-day -day basis, in particular the kids, the, the young people whose growth in some kind of way may have been stunted because of all the, the chemicals uh, and metals and things of that nature in that water. So I like what's happening, but let's not forget about these other cities and let's not forget about the aftercare. These people still need help. And that's a really good point that you raised because this money is just for the infrastructure. It's not for the aftercare. And so hopefully somebody's listening. That's right. Moving along, federal lawmakers are joining California's effort to address the impact of slavery and discrimination on black Americans. Representative Cori Bush introduced the Reparations Now resolution, also known as H.R. 414 seeking reparations at all levels with a proposed minimum of $14 trillion to address racial wealth disparities. California's Reparations Task Force is finalizing its recommendations. Representative Barbara Lee supports these initiatives and calls for federal action on reparations. Momentum is growing for reparations as lawmakers work towards rectifying historical injustices. All right, Republican-led states are moving forward with strict voter ID laws following a Supreme Court decision that weakened the Voting Rights Act. Texas and Alabama are among the states implementing these laws, which would have faced federal review under the previous provision. Concerns are growing about the impact on voting rights, particularly for black Americans. Legal challenges and efforts by voting rights groups persist in response to these restrictions. The Department of Corrections has stopped publicly notifying deaths of incarcerated individuals without warning. Previously, release, uh, pr previously, releases would include the detainee's name, housing facility, and time of death. A spokesperson for the department confirmed that these releases will no longer be issued. Advocates like Kayla Simpson from the Legal Aid Society's Prisoners' Rights Project find that the move is predictable and appalling, highlighting the department's transparency issues. Concerns arise about the department's attempt to control the narrative and evade scrutiny 
A federal monitor's report reveals incidents of serious injuries and suicides in the city's jails, prompting calls for increased oversight. You know, uh, evade scrutiny and uh, cover-up to me. That's, mm -hmm. that's what this sounds like. I mean, how inhumane is it um, to let folks know what has taken place uh, in prison? And even though these folks are, are in prison and, you know, they're paying their debt to society, they are still human and they do still have family members who do still care uh, about them. How inhumane uh, is this? So you mean to tell me that, you know, there's there's time and there's effort and there's resources to continue with an obituary, uh, but you can't release, uh, you know, those prisoners who have, you know, there's lives have ended uh, within the prison walls and, and give a little explanation as to how and why. Sounds like to me, you know, they don't want to be called out on some of those conditions that could have caused that prisoner's uh, demise. And I think sometimes, you know, we forget that, that the conditions in our jails and prisons, you know, are, amount to cruel and unusual punishment. Years ago, Courtney, uh, in California, when I was doing public affairs work, uh, the California prison healthcare system was under federal receivership. You know, and a judge, a federal judge, said that uh, the California prison healthcare system amounted to cruel and unusual punishment, right? And so, you know, when you, when you take a look at what's happening in New York, the conditions of these jails, and then you add insult to injury, you know, that you can't even notify a family. Yeah. You know, you don't even recognize that they're human. Mm -hmm. You don't even want to give their family the opportunity to mourn. And if you're trying to shift away from the conditions, which has been on the forefront, um, it, it really is a, a failed effort. Mm -hmm. I mean, because it just it just speaks to, you know, again, this whole idea of a cover up. You're going to focus in more on saying, hey, this is something or a service we're not going to provide anymore and not keep that same energy in addressing these horrible horrible, inhumane living conditions, you know, not just there in New York, but, you know, across uh, prisons uh, across this country. And I don't even look at it as a service. Like, this is, at a minimum, what you should do is in terms of respect for human life, mm -hmm. respect for human dignity. By yeah. golly. All right, moving on here. The Hu Human Rights Campaign has declared a state of emergency for LGBTQ people in the U.S. due to over 75 laws targeting the community in multiple states. This year, more than 525 anti-LGBTQ bills were introduced, including over 220 targeting transgender individuals. The number of anti-LGBTQ bills becoming law has more than doubled compared to last year. HRC warns of real threats, including violence and forced relocations. HRC has released a guidebook to help LGBTQ individuals affected by these laws. Courtney, I just want to lift up something that Human Rights Campaign uh, President Kelly Robinson, who's a sister, mm. you know, one of the things that she said in reaction to this, this need to declare a state of emergency, she said, quote, in many cases, they're resulting in violence against LGBTQ people, forcing families to uproot their lives and flee their homes in search of safer states and triggering a tidal wave of increased homophobia and transphobia that puts the safety of each and every individual at risk, right? And so as we report on this, it's one thing to say, okay, you know, there are hundreds of anti-LGBTQ bills. It's another thing to put a human face on that mm. and look at what LGBTQ people and families are up against in these states that are extremely hostile towards folks just because of their sexual orientation and gender identity. I would agree. I would agree with that. Well, deadly floods in Haiti have claimed 42 lives with many more missing and injured. 
Over 13,000 homes are flooded, worsening the country's already challenging situation. Aid agencies are delivering food to displaced individuals, while gang violence hampers rescue efforts. Additionally, the United States has blocked former Haitian prime minister uh, from entering the country due to corruption allegations. Oh, my goodness. Mother Haiti. I mean, they just they just catch it, whether it be environmentally, socially, politically, and they need help. But I don't think it's until we, whoever we may be, whether it's here in the States or abroad, until we value Haiti um, for the rich history and uh, a lot of their accomplishments. I mean, we always hear about the, de the, the demise, if you will, but, the, you know, uh, it's a proud island with, with a lot of a accomplishments, a rich history, but until we value that as a, as a valued uh, member of, of countries and islands and so on and so forth, you know, I, I think they'll continue uh, to suffer if we don't want to lend a hand. In particular, I'm, I'm going to put it on the, the shoulder of the French, <laughs> if, you, if you take a look at, at, at their history. You know, but that same energy to, to, to rescue and help this, this island, this country out uh, in the same manner in which, you know, we were able to help out immediately Ukraine and, and, and all of their, you know, issues. I just feel like pass that, pass that energy around. And hey, they know Haiti doesn't have the infrastructure. That's why, you know, you got Haiti on one side of the island. You got the DR on the other side, that's when uh, floods and volcanoes or whatever erupt and, and, and hurricanes come. That's why Haiti gets so beat up. It's because there's not, the, there's not the same infrastructure that maybe the DR has. And so it's quite clear what kind of help they need and, and have been needing for years on top of years on top of years. Yeah, you're right in terms of keeping that same energy that we have towards some of our allies like Ukraine. Sure. And just to remind our soulmates, you know, the earthquake that almost... Uh, that struck almost two years ago was a 7.2 magnitude earthquake that struck southern Haiti and killed more than 2,200 people. So mm -hmm. to your point, there's just been a string of, of unfortunate events that have happened um, in Haiti. But, you know, this is happening at a time where asylum has been made more difficult, mm -hmm. you know, for, for uh, people abroad, including Haitians. And so this is another reason why we need to revisit our asylum process and not sort of leave people you know, um, at the border. Well, I feel have, like that. Have, having to, to claim asylum in countries like Mexico because we make it more difficult well, for that, them to claim it that here. That asylum uh, process, and I use it very loosely, seems to be to benefit and be for only certain type of folks seeking asylum. Yeah, so we need, we need Haitians to be able to benefit from the asylum system the same way that other folks benefit when they are uh, facing uh, all sorts of tragedy and trauma in their home country. Still ahead, could the future of BET be community-based? Well, when we return, we'll have Kyle Bowser from the NAACP Hollywood Bureau to discuss more. Mm -hmm. Watching Fox Soul's Black Report, we'll be right back. Welcome back to Foxhole's Black Report. Well, there's a guest column in Variety magazine that's causing quite the conversation. Indeed. Now, the article is titled Black Equity Television, Why Paramount Global Should Turn BET Into a Community-Owned Network. This comes as talks about the future of the network seem a bit unsure as the potential buyers have changed several times. And here to discuss the article more in depth is Senior Vice President of the Hollywood NAACP Bureau and author of the article, Kyle Bowser. Welcome to Fox Hole's Black Report, brother. 
It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Oh, indeed. It's good to have you. All right, Kyle. So let's talk about the inspiration. What prompted you, you know, even though it might be a little plain and clear, what prompted you to write this particular article? I guess what prompted me to write the article was actually inspiration um, from a whole nother realm. Mm. In the world of sports, we have seen a model where the community owns an asset that the community really supports in, in large part. I'm talking about the Green Bay Packers. In 1923, that team was on the verge of bankruptcy. In an effort to, to save the franchise, they decided to offer shares of the team to the local residents, the taxpayers of Green Bay, Wisconsin. Today, that team is worth $4.25 billion, and it is owned by more than 350,000 residents of the city. So that model, I think, resonated with me when I read that Paramount was considering the sale of BET. I also read that Tyler Perry and Byron Allen and Diddy and, and a, a partnership made up of 50 Cent and Shaquille O'Neal and Kenya Barris were all considering uh, the purchase of that asset. And I think all of them are worthy and should be given the opportunity to make their run. Um, and I think all of them would be very committed to making sure that the network um, is positioned in our favor, in our community's favor. However, I thought it was also worthwhile for us to at least investigate the possibility of the community itself owning BET, much like the residents of Green Bay, Wisconsin, owning the football team. I really appreciate I your that. reference to, to the Green Bay Packers. Um, you know, that was sold back in 1923, and today more than 350,000 residents of Wisconsin share in that $4.25 billion asset. So that's huge. Can you talk to us a little bit about some other examples of what this could look like, given that there are so many high profile, you know, uh, black entertainers that are making a bid for this? You know, would NAACP itself look to have a stake in black equity television, possibly? Listen, I think what's really important is the idea that we as a community have a greater appreciation for the contribution that we make. Uh, to what is ultimately referred to as mainstream culture. And once we really appreciate that contribution, I think we start to think more intelligently about our stakeholder interest in that contribution. So we create something, uh, it catches on it. There's a, there's a sort of a viral um, evolution of that thing that we've created. And then you lose count of the origins of, of that thing, whatever it might be. Um, and I think we need to we need to record the origins of these creations and then say, listen, because we are the creators of that, we should have some interest in its exploitation as it moves through the chain. Yeah. Getting into the weeds uh, just a little bit. How would you go about uh, governing this particular uh, community who would come together and own it? Would there be some sort of kind of, you know, requirement or could anyone just be a part of this this community, this ownership, if you will? Well, let's first be clear. I'm not talking about a publicly traded company. I'm talking about a, a community-owned company, right? Mm -hmm. And so as the owners of this company, it would be incumbent upon us to also make sure that we have an excellent board of directors, which should, which should be comprised of people who have vast experience in business and in the media industry, um, as well as uh, the best management staff that we can put together. People who are going to actually have the day-to-day -day responsibility of running this, this asset. Um, and I think if we do that, 
we can sit back as owners and monitor their progress and from time to time if it's necessary through you know annual meetings or whatever to chime in and share our, our uh, sentiments then i'm sure they'll be happy to listen we are not the experts in running a television network when i say we i mean the community um but that doesn't mean we can't own it kyle you know other networks don't seem to be going through this kind of toss-up i mean at, at times it, it, you kind of wonder is is bet on clearance or something like that <laughs> You know, why is this even happening to BET or to put it in a more positive way, you know, um, how rare is this opportunity? Well, I would think that an asset on this scale, which has such a defined target audience, uh, is a rare find, which is why so many people, I think, have come to the fore to say, hey, listen, I would like to own this. But I think there's also a danger in, in allowing people who have a specific point of view as storytellers to also be the owners of a, of a uh, media platform that means so much to so many. Again, I, I don't think there's any problem whatsoever with any of those who have come forward to say, I'd like to buy this. I don't think there's any problem that we, we run with any of them completing the transaction. But I do think that as storytellers, there's a limited point of view and as business owners, you might open yourself up to a more expanded perspective that comes from the entire diaspora. It's unfortunate that the one and only platform that speaks to our community's interests has the burden of carrying everybody's uh, perspective. But that's, in fact, what we're dealing with with BET. Yeah. And, and with that in mind, if, if something and I think the idea is absolutely brilliant, if something like this doesn't happen, if, if it doesn't crystallize, where do you see the network going? And, and then how would that affect black entertainment uh, in, in general, especially with how they how they sort of kind of don't value uh, what we bring to the table? Well, the, the thing I'm, I appreciate most about the time you're you all are giving to this conversation is that there is a conversation happening. Mm -hmm. And so if the transaction ultimately doesn't um, consummate, I think it's okay because I think it's time that the conversation be had and perhaps whoever ultimately owns the platform will be more responsive to the community because the community has galvanized itself around this idea of, hey, we ought to have a stake in a platform that speaks to our interest. Even you know myself and those who have, who have um, applied you know for a, an ownership interest in this asset all of us are trading on on the cultural contributions that come from our community and so i think it's, it, it's appropriate to give the community more of a stakeholder interest in that marketplace hey kyle to, to courtney's point you know if it doesn't work out with bet do you expect <laughs> that your advocacy around this kind of model around ownership do you does NAACP uh, plan to continue to push folks in the media industry to consider this kind of ownership model? I mean, yeah, there are television networks, but there's also radio stations, there's streaming platforms, there's lots of room right. for this kind of model, no? We are fervently de dedicated to this principle, and I want to add the world of sports to the, the list of industries where I think we should start focusing our attention in this conversation about equity. I mean, if you own a home and you're paying your mortgage over time, you are accruing more and more equity in that asset. If you want to pull some of that equity out and go start a business or go buy another asset, you're free to do that. If you want to sell that home, 
the first thing you're going to pull out of that is what you've put into it. Well, what we have put into what is referred to as mainstream culture needs to be recognized, acknowledged, and at some point it needs to be enumerated. Hmm. Um, now, there's another word that people use sometimes when referring to these ideas, begins with the letter R, but that tends to shut down conversations. So the word I'm going to stick with is equity. Indeed. Talk a little bit about how our soulmates, those are our viewers, can get involved in the conversation right now. Anything tangible they can do uh, right now as this is just a, a conversation for now. Most public discourse these days is driven through social media. Mm -hmm. And so I'm looking forward to people reacting to this article and sharing their thoughts about the article um, and seeing what the community ultimately is. This is not a dictate from the NAACP. We're just kicking off a conversation to see if the people themselves want to want to carry the idea further. They may have ideas that go way beyond anything we would we would have considered. Our thanks to you, Kyle Bowser, the SVP yeah. of the Hollywood NAACP Bureau. Keep up the good work, brother, and we'll continue to spread the message. That's right. And keep getting into that good trouble. We appreciate your time today. My pleasure. Indeed. A new legal push in a class action lawsuit is alleging racial discrimination at Tesla's electric car plant in Fremont. And now over 240 black workers are looking to join the class action suit. Now, workers filed sworn statements as they moved to certify about 6,000 or more black employees as part of the suit. 240 people filed sworn statements saying racist slurs and graffiti were prevalent. That's right. The lead plaintiff, Marcus Vaughn, said he complained to HR, but nothing changed. He was fired after six months for not having a positive attitude. I, I love the, the, the galvanization of it all, you know? If, if that's a word, you got sacks. We've talked about Equinox. Mm -hmm. uh, we have talked about uh, FAMU just yesterday. Those students getting together and say, hey, you've been owing us money since the, the, the late 1980s. And now Tesla, and, and I've heard, you know, bits and pieces here and there about what's ha what's been happening um, at Tesla. And uh, these uh, 240 some odd black plus black employees are not playing. And look, I think this is what needs to happen. Keep keep forging ahead, gathering all of your information, your documentation, your proof and pushing through the legal system until uh, the atmosphere at these corporations changes. And riffing off of the conversation we just had with Kyle Bowser over at the NAACP Hollywood Bureau, there's power in community. And so mm -hmm. when it's not just one of us, but when we come together in community, whether it's these class action lawsuits or, you know, it's the model that NAACP is proposing in terms of the future of the ownership of BET, there's power in that. And I just want to take a moment to salute Marcus Vaughn and salute, you know, all of the 240 Tesla workers that have come forward, that have the courage to come forward and share their story. Uh, they shared their story by sworn statements. And so this mm -hmm. is under oath. Yeah. So they just didn't just jump out there and say, oh yeah, me too, you know. Uh, they, 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 they jumped out there with facts and with their experience and so, uh, we'll continue to follow the yeah, case. It's very brave because you think about maybe this could be to the detriment of how they 
feed and support their families. Uh, and so, you know, aside from their being sworn statements, this says to me that this is the real deal and they feel very deeply. And not only will hopefully it sh- it'll change and shift their situation, but it'll set a precedent precedent for these situations not to continue to happen. So very brave, Indeed. very brave of them. All right. Up next, teens accused of vandalizing a historical black church. That's right. We'll tell you the very latest on the story out of Virginia. You're watching Foxhole's Black Report. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Foxhole's Black Report. Well, teenage vandals have targeted First Asheville Baptist Church, a historic African-American church in Virginia, twice ransacking and spray painting the church and a schoolhouse. Yeah, messages and the vandals' names were spray painted on the walls. The vandals also trashed the church kitchen. The sanctuary mostly was uh, spared, but church officers were coated in fire extinguisher spray. My goodness, a press release from the sheriff's office says that none of the graffiti was related to race or ethnicity, but church members are still very troubled by what was written. Avery Pozo de Borgio, who was 19, and two juveniles were arrested and charged. The church was founded by freed African-Americans in 1874. Yeah, and I was reading a little further in, you know, prized, treasured old church documents were destroyed that were being stored. You can never, you know, get those back. I'm not sure if they could be restored. Um, but uh, it is just absolutely, you know, horrible. And, and with these violators being so young, I have to think that this is all, where are they getting this hate from? I mean, mm-hmm. of, of course, we know there's social media and, and they're being indoctrinated in, in some kind of way. But, you know, I have to circle back around to like home. When I was 19, I might have thought I was grown. But of course, there wasn't social media. But my parents pretty much knew what I was on and what I was doing and how, you know, and, and how it gets to a point where, you know, it seems as though, um, parents and, and the teachings and what you would think should be taught in a home is so once removed, you know, when we fast forward to this generation. And as a result, we have young people thinking they can, you know, be driven to a city by the mom and, and start shooting up uh, protesters. You have uh, these kids here who think it is OK uh, or, or think that there's no issue with uh, tearing up a historically black uh, church. And uh, you just wonder where's the starting point to end it. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think back to, you know, you know, why is it that these young people don't understand that places of worship are sacred? Right. Because they haven't been taught. And and, and they haven't been taught. And, you know, while, you know, the sheriff says that, you know, they're not sure of race, you know, was a part of this. Mm. You've got to wonder, you know, well, why did they pick this church? a church that freed African-Americans founded in 1874. Why this church? And why not once but twice? You know, what message are you trying to send? And, you know, think back to Mother Emanuel, right? You know, I, you know there was a reason why, why the perpetrator walked in that, church. Walked in that particular mm-hmm. church while black folks were worshiping. And so I want to know 
Why did these young people target this church? Yeah. That's not and so I don't need authorities watering story. that down. That's right. You know, don't water that down in your in your investigation. Yeah. You see it. That's right. You see the writing on the wall. All right. The National Genealogical Society, a highly regarded organization that researches family ancestry, is apologizing for its long history of racist and discriminatory actions and decisions the society made. Now, that's according to the Smithsonian Magazine. According to Catherine Doyle, the society's president and the first Asian to hold the position, the decision was in the works ever since the murder of George Floyd when the organization took time to examine some of the racist practices of its past. Doyle stated, in order to be credible, we have to be transparent and we have to fully discover what our past was as so many organizations are doing right now. Are they really? Well, <laughs> are know, they really being transparent and honest? Well, look, you know, I'll, I'll give... Not this organization, but other organizations that yeah. she's speaking Well, for to. this organization, I'll give them a hat tip, sure. you know, for, for making this uh, plain and publicly available. Mm-hmm. You know, but it's another reason why we have got to make sure that we teach our history. The founder of this society, who served as president from 1909 to 1912, openly shared his beliefs about white supremacy and maintaining the purity of the white race, right? That was a part of the genesis of this organization, right? And so, so many years later, over a century later, has this organization purged itself of that sort of racial bias that it it was built in to its DNA? That's a part of what this quote-unquote racial reckoning has been about uh, since we got here. For, For me, simply put, for me, It's about even before you can talk about, you know, the teaching of it, the problem has been our history has not been valued or valued enough. And so if it's not valued, it's not going to be incorporated and included in in these studies, even even before this this push and what's happening down with with your with your man down in Florida, even prior to this. And I think in order for folks outside of our culture to value it, we have to value it for ourselves and celebrate it for ourselves. Not that we don't, but maybe we need to hyper-value it, hyper-celebrate it, and really stick to our guns in regards to how much, his- how much this history is important to us and how deep we go with it and how much we know. And I, and I say that all the time, especially with the, with the Black Lives Movement. If we don't value ourselves, if Black Lives don't matter to ourselves, how do we expect others outside of the culture for to, you know, for us to matter to them. And thank you. So I think it starts, it ends and begins with us. And that's not to negate what's yeah. happening because what's happening is completely ludicrous. But, However... But, but also, thank goodness that James Dent Walker, um, it wasn't until 1972 that he joined this organization. Uh, and he's like, mm, y'all ain't doing it right here. And so he went and founded the Afro-American Historical and Genealogical Society in 1977. So for a lot of folks that are wondering, well, about the founding of certain black organizations, oftentimes we founded the black organizations because we weren't welcomed mm-hmm. in the white organizations, right? Because white supremacy reigned supreme in those organizations. And so this is the same history. The people that are running to be president of the United States you know, want to bury, want to erase, you know, want to ban books that reference stuff like this. So we've got to connect the dots. Moving along, several black families are doing exactly that. They're connecting the dots and they're fighting for property owned by their early ancestors across California. Three families in particular hope the hope to regain what is rightfully theirs. Reports say that the Blue family of Sacramento, the Hatton family of Napa, and the Burgess family of Coloma 
all had ancestors with property stolen from them. The state of California made news last year when Charles and Willa Bruce's family received ownership of the property known as Manhattan Beach. After being in the fight for almost 100 years, county executives finally presented the deed back to the family's descendants. Give them the, give them the land back. How long have we been talking about that? Maybe since we've been sitting in these seats, we have come, frequently come across you know, stories uh, like this. And not only with families, but with institutions who have been you know, robbed or duped out of their land. Cemeteries, mm -hmm. you know, black cemeteries. I mean, it is just ongoing. So maybe this is the day of reckoning uh, when the veil has been lifted and, you know, real ownership or original ownership is being proven. And, you know, if you're up against a, a, a corporation or some folks who who want to right the wrong or, or make good on highway robbery of, of people's uh, land, um, that's a good look. But you're going to have some who are going to continue to deny it and and really build their success on on what they've taken uh, from us. Uh, sounds pretty familiar. I mean, it's, it's the same narrative over and over again. So when I hear, read stories like this and people have triumphed mm -hmm. in either getting their land back or being able to cash in, if you will, on land they once owned, uh, it's a good look. But imagine how many more stories are out there, whether oh, yeah. those families are aware of what they used to own or not. Well, it's really great to see these oral histories that were, that are not unfamiliar to us. I mean, we've heard stories like this, mm -hmm. you know, for generations, right? But it's it's great to see these oral stories being translated into lawsuits, mm -hmm. you know, being translated into legislation, being translated into proposals that are getting really creative about how folks achieve reparations. And so, you know, this is just the latest example of it. I mean, you know, some of the land that belongs to these families, you know, since then there's been, you know, Amtrak Railroad that's been built yeah. on these lands. I think with one of the families, I think the, the county jail is built on the land. Malls, I mean, right, malls, retail. Right, yeah. and, and so there is economic activity that is happening on land, on stolen land. Mm -hmm. And the question is, what are people seated in positions of power and authority willing to do about it? All right. Still ahead, the camp for Wendy Williams is speaking out and responding to recent claims about her health. That's right. We'll tell you what they have to say after Wendy's son says she needs help. You're watching Foxhole's Black Report. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Foxhole's Black Report. Well, the estate for Prince has announced the full lineup for an evening honoring the late singer. Wow, the event will be held tomorrow in Paisley Park. That's in Minnesota, uh, Prince's hometown, of course. Artists like Shaka Khan, Chuck D, and D-Nice are expected to appear and uh, perform at the annual convention. The four-day celebration runs Thursday until Sunday. That's right. This year's convention will feature panel discussions, lectures, and dance parties throughout the entire weekend. Exclusive unreleased music and video performances of Prince will be played for attendees. You know what I find so interesting? And Prince would have been, we're celebrating his heavenly uh, birthday today. He would have been 58 today. And what I find so ama uh, amazing is he was so closeted and private while he was here with us in the physical. 
And now, you know, in the spiritual realm, his life is just wide open. You can go to his house. You know, you can hear music that, you know, for whatever reason he shelved because, you know, he might have been, you know, going at it with with record labels and execs. Um, you've, you've seen more of his family nowadays. You're hearing more stories uh, from the inside out. Folks who you never thought were friends with Prince, close you know, companions and good friends. You're hearing more about his uh, community efforts and how he would just, you know, not necessarily randomly, but yeah, he would just, you know, give money to help a family uh, bury a, a loved one. So I just think it's amazing that that all this is, is coming out, but it's all about continuing to to celebrate him, live in the legacy, and thank God for the for the memories and the music. The memories and the music, indeed. Yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, look. I wish we could just jump in the car. I don't know how long the ride is hey, from Minneapolis here to, soulmates. To, to Minneapolis. It's, but, a, it's uh, a minute. But, you know, for, for our folks that are watching us right now in mm -hmm. Minneapolis, mm -hmm. uh, since we can't be there, be sure to go check it out for yeah, us. That's on, that's on the list, though. I got I to gotta get to Paisley Park. Yeah. They say it is absolutely, you know, fascinating. It's just a beautiful, beautiful thing. So I can't wait to, to check that off my list. Maybe towards yeah. the end of the month. Oh, okay. When yeah. we got a little bit more time Maybe. on our hands. Yeah. yeah. All right. All right. Moving along. <laughs> Six months after uh, going into cardiac arrest during a game, Buffalo Bills safety DeMar Hamlin was back on the field and participating in team drills. Oh, this was so good to see. Yeah. Hamlin had been ramping things up during OTAs, a significant step towards uh, forward uh, from his cardiac arrest in early January. But this was the first time he went through a full practice with the entire squad. The next step for Hamlin is to put on pads during training camp. Uh, the, the safety was cleared to play in April, Hamlin, and the Bills will take on the Colts in their first preseason game in August. That's going to be big. People are really going to be, you know, excited to see him actually back, mm -hmm. you know, suited up and out there on the field. He is a walking he really is. miracle, mm -hmm. and we love to see it. He, he's a walking miracle. I mean, my goodness, we started the year just, you know, Shocked at On what had happened. High. Right? Yeah, that was tough. You know, and uh, and look at where he is now, right there on the field where he belongs, and mm -hmm. and still continuing to give, give of himself, yeah. and 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 to pour out to so many. I mean, his his uh, charity, you know, now has millions of dollars to to mm -hmm. advance their mission, and um, I'm just gonna enjoy yeah. watching some good news coming out of Buffalo. You know, sometimes God will take things and turn them around and we don't really understand. But some things he'll turn it around and the message is very, very clear. What a testimony. Uh, and so I'm just looking forward to seeing my man back out there. All right, Wendy Williams' manager is responding to her son's claims that her team is taking advantage of her during her health crisis. Uh, Will Shelby, or Selby rather, said Williams is under a court-appointed guardianship, which makes it impossible for anyone to exploit her. But in an interview with Radar Online, Kevin Hunter Jr., as Wendy's son, said um, Williams would never agree to certain things if she were in a right state of mind. Hunter also said people around the former talk show host have made earnings, uh, earning income more of a, a priority than her health. I mean, you know, you, you've got to you got to take this comment with some weight. I mean, this mm -hmm. is her son. Mm -hmm. um, and if I remember correctly, I think she only has one child and it's, and it's right. him, Kevin Hunter Jr. Right. And, you know, uh, you know, we haven't heard all the details in terms of of Wendy's health situation. Um, but it doesn't feel like she's been herself for a long time. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, we know when people are not doing well, whether you're, you know, 
rich and famous, you know, or not, you know, there is a temptation for people to take advantage of that. We see this all the time with seniors and older adults, and we see it with with folks that may be disabled uh, in some way, shape, or form. And so, you know, I, I, I hope that folks are looking into if the court is looking into what her son is saying mm -hmm. and making sure that whoever is charged with this guardianship um, is doing uh, everything they need to be doing. You know, I'm hoping that she's drawing close or even closer to maybe like the siblings who I feel will always look out for you. I mean, your siblings are in your life before your children, um, I'm, I'm assuming. Um, and, you know, I know in the past, uh, with the marriage in mind, the former marriage in mind, a lot of those relationships, I think with the siblings, the sister in particular, were a little stressed. Um, and I, I think there was like a, a coming to Jesus moment. I'm just, I'm just hoping that they can really, family, family who cares about her and her well-being uh, can really continue to rally around her and she can, she can continue to push through. I know there were talks not too long ago that she might return, you know, via like a podcast. I don't know if that has happened or not. Or maybe even return to, to CNN. But, but, but when you see Wendy out and, uh, out and about, you're, you're wondering, would she be able to handle that sort of kind of rigorous uh, schedule? Whether it be a podcast or TV, I think the focus, like the son is saying, should be her health versus you trying to make mm -hmm. a dollar out of 15 cents on, on her name. Well, we wish you well, Wendy. Get well soon. Absolutely. Developing right now, another woman has accused music artist Trey Songs of sexual assault. Court documents filed last week says that the alleged incident took place in a tent at an event back in 2013. TMZ has obtained video, which is expected to be used as evidence in court. Trey Songs was just in Atlanta over the weekend performing for the R&B experience. I feel like as soon as he kind of escapes one issue or one accusation, if escape is the appropriate word, he finds himself right into another one. And, you know, he's always proclaiming his innocence. But everybody ain't lying. I mean, there are there have been a lot of accusations. And I'm just thinking, is everybody lying? Is is just the it's just is it the world against Trey Songs? So I don't know. I'm kind of like in this in this gray area, you know, when it when it comes to him because these type of accusations have been ongoing for years, mm -hmm. years. And and it's important to note that this alleged accusation uh, of assault, uh, you know, took place in 2013. Allegedly took place in 2013. Mm -hmm. It's now 2023. That's 10 years. And so. I don't know if there's a statute of limitation thing, which is why we're hearing about, you know, this allegation right now. Um, it's important to note that it is an allegation and it's not uncommon, you know, that folks kind of come out the woodwork, mm -hmm. especially if they hear of, of folks, you know, getting settlements or, you know, um, you know, people's. Uh, cases advancing. It's, it's not unusual for other folks that may have similar ca cases to come forward. And so is, there may be a whole lot that we don't know, but mm -hmm. uh, you're right. You know, Trey Songs, you know, has had this sort of cloud of suspicion over him for a long time related to alleged sexual assault uh, uh, instances. And so we'll just have to stay tuned for the details. All right, let's sh do, a, do a, a heavy shift here uh, of a gear. Coming up next, our favorite segment, Black Excellence, and we're talking space, like outer space. That's right, we'll introduce <laughs> you to the first black person to travel to space with Jeff Bezos. She got a lot going on. Uh-huh, wow. when we come back, you're watching Fox Soul's Black Report. 
Welcome back to Foxhole's Black Report. Well, the first black woman to travel to space with Jeff Bezos has now secured a billion-dollar government contract. Can wow. you believe that? Oh, I can, I can believe it. According to this report, Aisha Bowie, the uh, first black woman to travel with Bezos on a commercial flight to space, is also a former rocket scientist and a successful entrepreneur. Bowie founded and successfully grew three multimillion-dollar businesses. The National Geospatial Intelligence Agency announced they have awarded a new $947 million contract designed to provide support for them. That's right. Uh, Bo's accomplishments is groundbreaking, and it's resonating across industries and exemplifying the immense potential within minority-owned businesses. Well, look, we have always had a lot of potential in our minority-owned businesses mm -hmm. when we get awarded the contracts that we bid for, that we earn, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's nothing new, but, you know, what a great opportunity for a black-owned business uh, to enter into space. If this ain't Afrofuturism, I don't know what it yeah, is. Yeah, it really is. And if you want to read up or, or see a little bit more about her climb, her, her backstory, it's very interesting. There's a documentary. It's called In Her Element. It's available on Amazon um, Prime and Apple TV. It's produced by uh, Reese Witherspoon's uh, company, Girl oh, wow. Power. Uh, and, and it's really interesting. Just take a look at her, her climb. You know, she's, and even though you know, these are very successful and lucrative contracts, um, she still has some more plans uh, in the works. So uh, she definitely might be the, the poster child and, and her business model may be something that, that the soulmates may want to tap into and check out. Well, this is definitely a climb out of the stratosphere. That's Just right. Saying. All right. A girl from Texas graduates from high school and makes history. That's right. Um, Ofer Senior Bodirin from Arlington, Texas, I hope I got that right, has graduated <laughs> high school at the young age of 14. Aside from her academic achievements, she holds a second degree black belt and wow. served as the editor of her school newspaper. Yeah, by the time she was two years old, Ofer Senior was already reading, and by the age of four, she had learned multiplication. Now, she credits her family for their unwavering, unwavering support and motivation, especially her older sister, who is a role model, who had also graduated from high school when she was 14. So that's a family for the smarties. That's, that's amazing. That's incredible. That's mm -hmm. incredible. And look, and if she's doing this at 14, imagine what she's going to be doing at 40. A billion dollar contract <laughs> like the young lady prior to securing that right. secure bag that's right. that's for, right. for the future to come and, and black business to come. Those are great. I love, you know, the, the black excellence uh, segment because we tap into, you know, all different happenings, you know, all things, things black. And it really helps to balance out or, or counteract some of what we have to talk about at the top of the show. You're with, right. With some of these tragedies, especially the violent uh, tragedies. And then we're moving into all the discrimination. And so it's good to kind of round the show out with such good news and, and advancements like this. Yeah, and, and it's a reminder. I mean, you know, we as a people, we celebrate both our rhythm and our blues. Mm -hmm. Right. And and we can talk about the things that make us sad, the things that make life more difficult for black folks. But we can also celebrate the things that um, help us feel good about ourselves, help us feel good about our future. Um, you know, it's not we shall overcome. We are overcoming. Mm -hmm. We are overcoming. And I love these black excellence stories because they are examples everywhere mm. of how we're overcoming, not just in big cities 
or in small towns, not just on the coast, but everywhere. And so you're right, it's really a privilege to be able to sit here to take folks on a journey across black America and share the stories that they may not hear so much, you know, on other news programs. Absolutely. All right. For the full rundown on stories we just talked about on uh, today's show and much, much more, you can access Fox Soul's video on demand on any of our partners. And if you take a look at your screen, you'll see all of those partners listed right there. You can even access past shows and other black centered content. And Soulmates, don't forget to download the Fox Soul app. It is absolutely free. It's How a much? way that it's absolutely free. <laughs> it's a way that you can continue to stay connected and, and be down with us 24-7, not only Fox Soul's Black Report, but all the other shows that are featured on uh, the Fox Soul Network. That's it's right. A, it's a good look. You can also uh, check out foxhole.tv. Mm -hmm. uh, that'll give you a whole rundown of what's happening here at Fox Hole. That's right. Yeah, I'm Courtney Hicks. And I'm Nick Cordelide Corte. On behalf of the entire team here at Fox Hole's Black Report, because you know it takes a village <laughs> to produce a Fox Hole's Black Report, I'm Dr. Nick Cordelide Corte today, apparently. And I'm not a doctor. <laughs> but thanks so much for watching. We're back tomorrow. Wow. Yeah, and throw a doctor in there in a while. Okay, it's kind sir. Slip of the tongue. No, slip no. Of the tongue, slip of the tongue. <laughs> I tell Bye, y'all. Better let them know. <laughs>